Good morning. This is episode two of uh, Ethics Today, and our guest this morning is T.J. Brooks, who's professor and chair of the Department of Economics at University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. And our topic today is the ethics of the stay-at-home orders that we see implemented by most, most states right now. And, um, and today is April 21st. Uh, Governor Tony Evers of Wisconsin just announced uh, end of last week that he was extending the, the safer at, at home uh, policy until May 26th. And of course, uh, this has raised a lot of opposition and, um, and there's ethical questions about how do we balance uh, the good for, for society overall with uh, the well-being of individuals. And, um, and I think we're in a way kind of having that debate all over the country, both uh, on the media, but also kind of individually among friends and family members. And so I wanted to talk to you, TJ, about um, how does an economist think about uh, issues like this, where we're trying to weigh two things that seem in, in some ways to be incommensurable, right? The, the lives of some people versus the livelihoods of others. And, and, and how do we sort through what's the right thing to do? Um, I think this is where, you know, economists uh, shine. So I think we are the uh, ones who believe fundamentally that um, everything can have a dollar sign applied to it, although, you know, we don't necessarily take that uh, to uh, an extreme. It helps us sort of think about sort of costs and benefits of different situations. So in this context, we're really thinking about the cost of uh, what we sometimes call a, a value of a statistical life. So the cost of someone uh, dying prematurely. Other measures that we use in health economics would be the quality adjusted life years to try to figure out sort of how people value these extra uh, years of the life that they might lose. But just real simply, the value of a statistical life, we might sort of ask 100,000 people um, how much money they would uh, uh, pay to sort of reduce the risk of dying by one one hundred thousandth. And if, if they each said $100, then we can see that, that that totals up to $10 million, that basically we could save one life, uh, uh, and that would be equivalent to $10 million. And that's in the neighborhood of where economists come to sort of estimate. Obviously, um, that's the value of what we would call a statistical life, or the average sort of um, uh, life. Uh, obviously, other measures like quality adjusted life years look at sort of um, how many years people have left. and. Um, and, and how many years that sort of they uh, might, might extend their life by. Anyhow, we use these measures to sort of weigh both the costs and the, and the benefits. So, but I'm wondering, is that, is it really reliable? I mean, I might, I might give you an answer to like, so how much I would spend, say, to extend my life or something. But then in real life, I'm, I might go out, for example, and purchase an exercise machine because I think it's going to extend my life. And then I use it for a couple of weeks and then stop. Right, so that I, I I intend one thing when I give an answer, but how I behave is entirely different. Right, and so you know, economists work really hard to sort of infer people's true values by looking at their behavior rather than just simply asking in surveys. Well, that's one way uh, that we certainly do it. But you know, you can look at people's behavior like you just described um, when the doctor prescribes medicine. How uh, how compliant are they with that medicine? And we know, and the patient knows how that medicine sort of saves their life. Um, we also know that, um, for example, when you choose uh, different modes of transportation, they have with them different risks associated with them. 
and they also have several different prices and you can infer. We know that people in different contexts though make different decisions that are sometimes inconsistent with each other. People don't always act in a purely rational, consistent fashion all the time. But again, I think what we're, we're trying to do is understand on how we evaluate these things in the aggregate and we need some estimates. So all, all estimates are probably flawed on some level. We work hard to sort of get a better measure, but, but it, it gives us, um, it gives us a, a framework for analyzing these questions. Otherwise, without it, I think you're, you're, you're lost at weighing those costs and benefits. Well, well given that, so what, what do you think about extending the stay-at-home orders to May 26th? I mean, some people say, well, the, the cost of this just isn't worth it. I mean, we might we might flatten the curve even more, or even trend it downwards. But um, if if we lose so many businesses that you that you have people suffering all kinds of other kind of health effects and so forth, um, is is there a point at which we say, yeah, it really isn't worth it, even though we might save some lives? I think I think it depends. You have to have the proper counterfactual in your mind, uh, and I think. You know, people have in their mind when they say statements like the the you know if we just open up everything would be fine and go back to normal. Yes, more people would die, but everything would be fine. You know that that's just not the counterfactual that we would live in. Uh, we know that there's a pandemic. We know that it has uh, you know mort high mortality risk, easily transmitted, and lots of people that maybe won't die from it could be you know permanently uh, affected by it. Sort of their respiratory problems could last the rest of their life. Given that environment, I, I'm I'm not going out to a rest. If, if the governor opened tomorrow and uh, restaurants opened and said, "Come on in," I'm not going to a packed restaurant. Uh, lots of people would not, you know, would wisely not go to a packed restaurant. Um, so people would would uh, cut back. So the counterfactual world isn't one uh, where the where the virus doesn't exist because the virus exists. The counterfactual world is one where the virus exists. It presents an enormous risk to people. And they behave uh, given that sort of risk, and so, you know, so given that that economic damage caused from the the pandemic and the virus is probably far greater than the economic damage damage being caused by the stay-at-home orders, because that's designed to reduce the spread of the disease, so that we can reduce death and um, uh, other uh, consequences until we get a vaccine or until we dramatically improve treatment or until we get to the point where we can effectively test, trace, and quarantine. Right, so you're, you're saying that really the only, um, the only effective economic solution to this is to address the pandemic itself, right? Yeah, I mean, some, some economists are, you know, on, on Twitter they've uh, taken some type of uh, hashtag where maybe they, they say something along the lines of the first rule of uh, pandemic economics is to stop the pandemic, right? I mean, that's right, the, first, right. the first, first rule. Well, I'm, I'm wondering, though, whether the, um, the way in which we phrase so many of these, uh, these, these stay-at-home policies are, are often phrased in terms of essential versus non-essential businesses. And that seems to me to be a problematic in itself because, you know, you might have an essential business which requires people to work very closely together and, and pose some great risk of contagion, but you might have... Another fairly, what you would consider an inessential business where, where you only have a few people working in a shop that they can space out and they could do it very safely. So shouldn't we be talking about 
safer versus riskier businesses instead of just essential and non-essential? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think, and I think we should be talking about sort of um, uh, safely engaging in activities versus sort of unsafe activities that probably shouldn't be engaged in at all. And I, I think I understand why the sort of essential businesses uh, framework started. It was, it was a, a little bit more easy to implement from a political and a public policy and educational perspective. It does sort of give the wrong message. I mean, I, I think everybody in the economy that's doing different jobs are essential to the working of the economy. Um, and so it's hard to say who's essential and who's not um, in that respect. I think what they ended up saying was uh, essential businesses were businesses that generally speaking were, were ones where we could do some safe practices. But okay. I really do think you're right. We need to move towards the, the uh, safer practices or safer engagement with the economy. Um, and also, I guess kind of related to that, I just wanted to ask you about what you think of the, um, the idea of different kinds of policies for urban areas and rural areas. Because uh, you know, we, we know that the uh, contagion spreads much more rapidly in areas of high congestion. But um, you have um, some of our small towns, in, in, like in rural Minnesota, rural Wisconsin, you, have, you can have towns of 500 or 1,000 people or 2,000. And um, you have these small businesses that um, really are the lifeblood of the whole economy in those towns. Um, where there doesn't seem to be as great a risk of spreading um, the coronavirus as there is in large cities if you have where you have a lot of traffic. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, certainly um, if you think about uh, this, the density of people, but, I mean, that, that's the idea behind uh, the safety, right? The less densely located people are or that the less dense that people mix. You know, you can, my concern is with, with rural areas is it absolutely is true that, you know, you have less de density and you have all the ability to sort of uh, socially distance well. I mean, in fact, I, you know, ironically, we know we have a problem with sort of isolation and too much social distance in some places in rural America, right? This has caused other sorts of problems. Um, but in this case, it'll be an effective tool for mitigating the disease. But that said, there's still activities, you know, what you, what you want people to understand is it's not just because you live in a rural area doesn't mean you're safe from the virus. It means, you know, most of the time as you move about, you're safer than if you were walking through, you know, a busy street in New York City. Um, but if you go to a high school basketball game or if you go to like, you know, play basketball with 20 friends or whatever, um, that can happen in a rural environment. It can happen in, in uh, you know, uh, in Brooklyn. And uh, it's just as dangerous in each of those places, right? It really is about sort of, I think, coming in contact with, uh, with other people. So again, we're, we're, we're back really to the idea of what are the safe practices and unsafe practices. Right, right, right. And I think, you, I think you're absolutely right that it'd be easier to um, engage in safe practices, safe transactions in an environment where there's just less population density. Because if you go into that corner store, there never were more than two people in that corner store ever on a good day. And right. there aren't going to be now. But, you know, in Manhattan, you can't go into a corner store without there being 20 people in it, right? Um, right. And so they're going to have to figure out a way to manage that uh, flow of people to keep it safe. Well, in, in a nice sense, uh, just from, from my discussions with people, that some of the resistance of these stay-at-home owners is really coming from owners of very small businesses who are pretty sure they could, they could open and, and operate their business fairly safely, but they're not allowed to. And, and, and I, I wonder if, if 
we're listening enough to the different ways in which people are impacted by these decisions. And, um, and I don't know, I don't, I don't know how, if it's taking us a while to finally tune some of these policies, if that's what's going on or what? I, I think that, you know, um, I think that, in, you know, someone in the public health space would be probably better at addressing this. But I think what we know from education is that when it comes to sort of trying to educate people on these different things, one, it takes a while, and two, compliance isn't sort of 100%, and lack of compliance in this context is dangerous. And so people impose hard, fast rules to try to, you know, extremely both scare people, but also get as compliant behavior as sort of possible. Right. The reality is, right? And so, but the, you know, the reality is that you can act safely, but I know lots of people at the moment who I, I think are educated and understand this still are in some ways um, not being as careful as they probably should be. Um, and so, you know, the, the, what you worry about is a message that says we're opening up, implying that we, we don't have to be as safe. And I think the good public health people have really been clear to say, this doesn't mean we don't, we don't still wear masks. This doesn't mean that we still don't socially distance. It just means we have to do those things. And it's a little bit um, uh, safer to engage in activities uh, uh, now uh, while maintaining those uh, safe practices. Um, so I want to ask you about the uh, economic stimulus plan also, not since, since you're here and uh, this is the sort of thing you study. I, I really don't have much of an opinion at all about like what, what is effective, especially, you know, both short term and long term. Um, what, from your point of view, what are you seeing? Like, um, is there anything that should be done that we're not doing kind of as a nation? And then also, I would guess, that, you know, like, what can towns or cities do as well? Is there, is there something they could do that would would really be helpful as we try to get the economy back to some kind of normal? Uh, yeah. Um, so I would say, you know, when this started, I think we all had this collective hope that it would be short-lived, that we'd either find a vaccine or find some solution quickly, and that these stay-at-home policies would be in place for, let's say, four weeks. And I think policymakers initially, or at least economists initially, had in mind this idea of labor hoarding. So let's Let's get firms to just hold on to their workers, not lay them off. We'll basically, you know, in effect, what we wanted to do was sort of uh, give everybody a four-week vacation, you know, sort yeah. of like turn this place into France, everybody a four-week vacation, uh, paid vacation, they'll stay at home, and then after four weeks, everybody can sort of come out and the economy will return uh, raging uh, at the same sort of uh, way that it was going before. Um, it, it's 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 gonna it's clear now that that's not going to be the case. Um, I think the goal still was labor hoarding as much as possible, but this is not like a typical recession. So the things we would do are, are, are do tend to be different. We've gotten some money to to um, to businesses. It hasn't really hit small businesses. They have trouble accessing the money, so more money for small businesses to weather this particular storm. I mean, they've, they've talked about a payroll tax cut, which is really just the wrong type of uh, policy in this particular case. You really need to get money in the hands of people that are, are out of work and need to cover uh, expenses. And that's true for individuals, and it, it's true for companies, and it's true for the states themselves, uh, right? So um, states are not going to see the sort of income revenue that they have. And 
what we know happened in the Great Recession was the feds did a lot of work financially, but they just really didn't give the states enough money. And so this, so while the feds were, you know, expanding as much as possible, uh, as much as possible, but expanding, um, the uh, the states were contracting, which was counteracting that. My fear here is the states that won't get won't get enough money, and so the, the things that the states do, the state governments do, and then by virtue of that, you asked about sort of uh, localities and that, you know, they're they are going to need revenue in the same sort of way to do some of the same activities as they start to lose some of their yeah. uh, financial base. Now, yeah. a lot of them rely on income taxes less. They rely on the property tax. And so, um, uh, you know, the, their funding won't be quite as effective, but the states will certainly um, uh, be dramatically impacted uh, by this. So the feds could give the states uh, money as well. Here, what about, I've heard some people talk about we need something like uh, the, the New Deal again, um, you know, the uh, WPA putting people to work. Um, we, we've got, we're going to have huge issues, it seems to, it seems to me, uh, with uh, uh, infrastructure in this country, which is already in pretty sad shape, and we're going to have to invest in that, but we're also going to be carrying a lot more debt. Are there, are there ways that we could do something like the New Deal again to, to get people back to work and, and, and also stimulate the economy? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, in terms of the initial types of activities that we were doing, nothing like that was, that wasn't necessarily the first uh, thought. But as this drags on, as this becomes a recession that involves, you know, again, more permanent layoffs, and workers are not going to go back to the jobs that they had because those firms have had to completely shutter. And, um, and people are looking for income. And as we sort of engage in these safer work practices, uh, you know, construction jobs, government-funded construction jobs on infrastructure um, can be one of those things to help uh, bridge the gap, certainly. I mean, this is a, you know, it's an unprecedented amount of uh, uh, deficit that we're gonna engage in, deficit spending that we're gonna engage in. But with interest rates near zero, uh, and in some cases, temporarily negative, that, that is the uh, the savers are paying the government to borrow the money from them. So it's it, it is the time to sort of uh, worry less about uh, about the deficit and engage in some of these types of activities. But I do think that's something that will probably be um, uh, uh, looked at sort of more mid to late summer as we get a better handle on exactly how long this is going to uh, last and what the more ongoing economic damage is going to look like. Right. Yeah. Um. Uh, and finally, before we wrap up here, I just want to ask you a question. We're, we're both uh, professors teaching at different universities, and we've got uh, students who are seniors who are graduating. Um, and uh, the job market today looks a lot different than it did, you know, a couple months ago, right? And um, mm -hmm. last time we saw them in classes. And uh, what are you telling your students who are graduating at this time? Is there any advice you're giving them or anything? Any silver linings that they can look to? Um, you know, unfortunately, having sort of looked at uh, past recessions and some, it's, you know, it's going to be a challenge for them. These types of events tend to um, scar generations, right? Mm -hmm. So they start off in sort of a lower footing and they, you know, they never sort of fully recover. I think the key that I would tell students nowadays is to try to uh, spin that into a hopeful tune is to be flexible, you know, to really be flexible, to take their sort of uh, 
university education and um, to always be in pursuit of sort of what their interests are and, um, and, and be sort of looking because what happens is if you sort of start on sort of a low rung of the ladder and you, and you stop sort of looking, you won't ever reach that sort of higher uh, level that you might've been capable of from an income perspective or even a life uh, uh, quality of life perspective. And so they're just gonna have to be more mobile and sort of be looking more as they sort of enter the labor market in, in their first few years before they might find something that they, uh, um, they both enjoy and, and earn a high income in. Well, well, thank you. I mean, that's, that's probably good advice for all of us, right, at, the, at this point, is to try to be, be fairly flexible and, and, uh, and to kind of reevaluate what our interest is and see where we can pursue them. So yeah. uh, thank you very much. This is a fascinating discussion, and, and I hope we uh, can talk some more in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, thanks.